Good evening. Well, I assume you guys came tonight because uh, aside from just uh, worshiping, that you also had a desire to get into the Word tonight. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to pick up where uh, Pastor Derek uh, left off, and that's in uh, Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, as we gather tonight uh, to, to just be under the preaching of your word, and, and myself included, uh, God, that we just desire to, to learn of you, God, to be shaped and, and molded by the power of the Holy Spirit and conformity to your word. Uh, Lord, as Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we pray tonight, God, that as the word goes forth, that you would use this to mold and shape our hearts, that we would... Uh, be conformed by what we're hearing, and uh, it would have an impact on the decisions that we make in the weeks to come, that the Holy Spirit would bring these things to our memory and thereby drive us to do your will. And so, God, that's what we ask tonight, that, uh, that we would be a people who seek after your heart and long to do your will. Uh, Father, would you use this tonight as that means? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a very, um, very heavy portion of Scripture, and so uh, it was through just uh, a lot of prayer and careful study uh, that we approached this text today, and if you're not sure exactly what I'm referring to, uh, as we get towards the end of tonight, we'll be um, really zoning in on what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, interpretations through, throughout the years, and we don't discard those. Uh, just to come up with our own, but we do want to take those into consideration as we, as we say, Lord, what really is this verse saying, and what does it mean to us today? And so um, that's my goal, is to unpack not only that verse, but the verses prior to that. So with that being said, let's just jump right in. And verse 13, I'm going to go, obviously, verse by verse here, so we'll spend a little bit of time just on this, this first verse, this first sentence and it says this, that he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Beautiful verse. He went up on the mountain, called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we just a short time ago were in um, Revelation. I happen to be actually teaching from Revelation 14, and so maybe this is why it sticks out for me in particular. But it... it reminds me of a verse that says this, that there were 144,000 Jews standing on Mount Zion singing a new song that no one can learn. They have been redeemed from the earth, and it was said of them that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So here you have a picture of 144,000 Jews who had been uh, purchased out of the earth. They were the remnant. They are the remnant. And, and it says about them that these were the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. But I, I bring that to our memory because before you can ever have 144,000 believing Jews, you start with 12. And so if we just kind of track, if you will, the origins of their faith, the 144,000 um, 
you narrow that down to the faith of the 12. And so before there was ever said that there were those that follow the lamb wherever he goes, it was first said this, that he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. I think this is not only uh, the origins of how faith begins in, uh, in the plan of redemption throughout history, but also in our very lives. For the scripture says that no one can come, John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. That, that is to say that there is a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit that is taking place long before you and I ever were aware of it, right? In fact, we could go as far as to say that even tonight there are some who were compelled to come, and maybe they thought they were compelled by a friend, but in all reality, the Holy Spirit is drawing you. Nobody comes to the Son unless the, the Father draws him, and as it is written, they shall all be taught by God. Now, they, they all is not a reference to the entire world, but uh, but those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that the Holy Spirit is revealing, and, and we can just ask right there, what is it that the Holy Spirit uh, reveals? And we know the scriptures. It says that the Holy Spirit should lead us and guide us into all truth. Well, what is the truth? As, uh, as it was asked of Jesus and we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the Holy Spirit is constantly revealing Christ to the mind and the heart of those that come to know God. Because the only way to know God is through Jesus. And again, it says that, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So it, it kind of answers the question, well, there's a lot of people who say that they're learning of God. Maybe they learned of God through nature or maybe they learned of God through some supernatural experience that they, that they said to have had. And, and we're not denying the possibility of their supernatural experience. But, but we do want to ask the question, how do we know that they're truly learning from God? And the answer is that if anybody learns from the Holy Spirit, they shall all be taught by God. And these ones who are taught by God come to Jesus. If they don't arrive at Jesus as the final destination, they're not learning from God. Uh, in fact, we can go as far as to say that they're, they're learning if, if it's some spirit who is teaching them and is not leading them to Jesus, that they're actually learning from a demonic spirit. Did, did you know, and of course I say this as a rhetorical question, assuming that you do already know that, uh, that the revelation of Jesus in your heart was not because you were brilliant enough to finally figure it out, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, it, that it came because in, in a very similar way that Jesus called us to himself. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 says when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And so they said, some say John the Baptist reincarnated because John the Baptist had died at this point. Some uh, Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, brilliant, brilliant. You must have done very well in school. Yes, Danielson, right? That's not at all what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of harping on this because the, the, the title to my message tonight is The Preciousness of the Holy Spirit. How precious is the Holy Spirit and the life of God's people. How precious is the Holy Spirit uh, in, in, in general? Whether, they're, whether they believe or don't believe, the Holy Spirit is precious. And so my first point here, just uh, as, as we go through, is just that the, the preciousness of the leading of the Holy Spirit. You're here today because God has called you. And God is making himself known to you by his spirit, through his word, and you receive it by faith. And Jesus had called the 12 disciples to himself, and they were chosen for a very specific task, and that task was to be with Jesus wherever he went. Why? So that they could be witnesses of who Jesus is. And they would declare what it is that they have seen. And this is exactly what is said in 1 John 1. That which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In other words, he's saying you can, you can uh, take our word as true because uh, we're not just people who heard about Jesus. Uh, it's been verified that we walked and talked with Jesus for, for three years of his ministry. We, we know who he is. And so when we proclaim to you this word, which Jesus has told us to preach, uh, we're not just doing it because of hearsay. But you can trust our words because we've actually handled and touched the very word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Uh, Peter said something along those same lines. Listen, you can, you can trust the testimony that we give to you, not because of hearsay, uh, hearsay, but because we were with him. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father... Honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And you'll recall that this is a, that, that Peter is referencing being on the mountain with uh, James and John. And uh, they, they were up there and they saw Jesus transfigured. His garments became whiter than any human bleach can make clothes. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Listen to him. And of course, with Jesus in that moment was uh, Elijah and Moses. Uh, so that even in the physical presence of these two great greats, but really what they were, were they, were, they were testimonies of the one to come. And now here they are in his very presence saying, hey, look, we, t- we told you. We told you this was the one to come. And then, of course, if that's not enough, as I just stated, even God himself spoke from heaven. And so Peter, as an eyewitness, says, you can believe what it is that we're sharing with you because we saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. And it was for this purpose that Jesus appointed the 12, that they would spend time with him. They would be able to sniff him out, if you will. And their conclusion at the end was, this is the Son of God. And if, and if for whatever reason we seem to doubt the, cre- the credibility of the Scriptures, even church history tells us that these men not only believed with all their hearts that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and God in the flesh, but so much so that they were willing to die. And they did die for their faith. Verse 14, then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. So Jesus gives the 12, not only does he invite them to do life with him, he calls them to himself that they might be a testimony of the validity of who Christ is. But furthermore, then he even endows them with power. Power to cast out demons, power to heal the sick. And by the way, just so there's no confusion, Judas was a part of this 12, which means that uh, Judas himself was endowed with power to heal the sick. And there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that Judas did indeed actually do exactly that. That with the disciples, uh, Judas went around healing the sick, showing acts of mercy, ironically. Which I think only just proves the point that um, no matter how good we are, all the goodness that we have is owed to God. Are you with me? Because sometimes people say, well, I don't understand so-and-so is a good person. How could they ever go to hell? But the truth is, as somebody just said aloud, that no one's good. There's none good, no, not one, Romans chapter 3. Well, what about the fact that we're able to do good? And and in that sense, surely there's goodness in man, and amen to that. 
Amen to that. But just like Judas walking in the power of Christ, but yet he himself fell oh so short. And in the same way, we might walk around with the attributes of God and, and might in some sense carry the fragrance, of, the fragrance of his goodness, and yet our wickedness is revealed even in that, that we walk around with borrowed goodness and we refuse to give him the glory. By either acknowledging that the goodness that we have is from him or by submitting our lives entirely to him. Meaning he's good enough for us to walk around cloaked in his garments. But he's not good enough in our estimation for us to give our lives to. That's robbery. And the Bible says that God will share his glory with no man. These are the, the signs of the apostles. And I think it's important to distinguish that. Now I want to be very clear as I, as I just attempt to break this down. Uh, I am not in any means uh, applying that these gifts were only for the apostles. Some people will, will say that, and they'll use the scripture I'm about to read. And they'll say that these gifts were, were uh, no, they no longer exist. God no longer uh, gives people the ability to, to pray and lay hands on the sick and heal them. Uh, God no longer gives the ability to, um, to cast out demons. Uh, we don't believe that as a church. We believe that, that God gives gifts as the Holy Spirit wills. He did then and he does today. Nevertheless, we do need to make a distinction that the gifts that were given to the apostles were, were for the expressed purpose of signifying that these men were indeed the apostles of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul says that these were the signs of an apostle. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I'm not a fan of the New Trans Living Translation, but every once in a while it just says things a little clear, okay? <laughs> um, that's not the statement of the church. That's my personal preference, okay? I do not like NLT. Um, it's a thought-for-thought thought translation instead of being a word-for-word. Word. Um, so it's great for commentary, not, not great for your daily study. That's, that's my personal opinion on that. But NLT nevertheless says this, When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle. For I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. So, so the power that was given to the disciples was, was for the express purpose that all would know that they have the authority that Jesus has given them. And therefore, what they testify about Jesus is to be taken very seriously. Amen? Simple enough? Uh, I, and I want to make that distinction, and here's why. Let me just kind of read as I wrote it here. It's important to call to mind here that although this was indeed a blessed call in which each disciple was appointed and was the verification of his ministry, and although our modern readers would, would and should desire that each one of these gifts should be graciously bestowed upon them, 
Yet none of these gifts of the Holy Spirit solidify or even verify a man's salvation and his right standing with God. Here's why I make that distinction. Because you can read the gifts that were given to the apostles and, and, and you can read into that and go, well, well, God did that yesterday. He can do that today. Amen. I'm with you. But and then if your conclusion is, so everyone who walks in those giftings has been appointed by God. Or you might read it in a condemning way. Well, I, I, I don't walk in those giftings. I must not be saved. Are you with me? Yes. And I want to prove to you that you can walk in those giftings and it does not verify your salvation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 I, I just kind of broke it down in, in, in four points. They were with Christ and had his name upon their lips. They preached Christ wherever they went. They were given power to heal the sick, and they cast out demons. If we were to break it down in that manner, we could just say, well, does everyone who named the name of Christ, do they belong to Christ? Not necessarily. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We could, we could uh, shout Jesus from the rooftops, right? I don't want to taint that song now, but <laughs> no, <I'm> like, <laughs> Jesus from the rooftops. What's the, what's the other verse? Help me out. Jesus in the streets. I love that song, by the way. I really do. But we, we could. We could, right? We, we could be those who shout Jesus from the rooftops, Jesus in the streets, Jesus where, wherever we go, and yet we, we never really are about the will of God. Uh, they preach Christ wherever they went. Surely preaching is a sign. Now, granted, each one of these can accompany the life of a believer. But it's not what makes the believer. And it's not even what verifies the believer's salvation. Somebody might be asking, well, what does verify the believer's salvation? We'll, we'll, we'll get there, but just rock with me for just one more second. They preached Christ wherever they went. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. In other words, Paul says, my body doesn't tell me what to do, I tell it what to do. Lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, don't, don't get it twisted. If I preach about it, but I'm not about it, I don't truly belong to him. So you know that I belong to him if, if well, Jesus said it like this, if you love me, you will obey me. And then, of course, that they were given power to heal the sick and they cast out demons. Running back to Matthew chapter 7, now in verse 22, it says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? That, those are rhetorical questions. Did we not do those things? Yes, we did. Our ministry on the earth appeared to be fruitful. We were actually casting out demons and making your name known. But what does he say? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
So what is the sign of a true believer? These are the signs of the apostles. And it was important in those times to signify an apostle by the signs and wonders that he accomplished. But you can't necessarily draw that out and say it's the same today. What is the sign that we truly belong to him? The greatest sign is our faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. How do I, how, what evidence do I have that salvation really belongs to me? My faith. You can take my body, but you can't take my faith. My faith is the living testimony that the Holy Spirit is empowering me to walk with Jesus. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. But we can't forget Galatians 5, 5. For though through the Spirit eagerly we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. I'd asked the question a second ago, uh, what, what signifies a believer? How, how do you verify our, your salvation? And I heard somebody say love. And then I said faith. And it's not that they were wrong. We just got to get to one step before we get to another. Faith is first. But faith works itself through love. Some people say uh, you need to love Jesus in order to come to him. But you need to believe in Jesus before you can love him. Faith will produce love. But it won't just produce love for God. It will simultaneously produce love for others. Because now we begin to see that these people who I'm surrounded by, whether I like them or don't like them, they're created in his image and I desire to honor him, and therefore I can't dishonor those that he's created. I may disagree with them. I may not always get along with them. But I've got an obligation to honor them because they're created in his image. And how much more do we not honor the children of God who not only bear his image but have his Holy Spirit? It amazes me when I ponder on verses like these and you go on social media and you just watch Christians just slander one another and you can't help but wonder, are they even Christians? And, and when they read verses like this, do they not help to check themselves and go, oh my, oh my. 1 John 3.14 says this. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life. I love verses like this because, you know, you always want to be sure about whatever it is that you believe, especially as it relates to your salvation. So when I read something like this that says, we know that we have passed from death to life, everything goes in me. What, what, wait, what, where, how, 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 how do we know? We, you can know, you can know, like you can know now that you've passed from death to life. Not that you're going to pass from death to life. You can know it with such surety that you've already passed from death to life. How? How, how do you know? 
1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know what the evidence is of our faith? That we truly have saving faith? That we, we, we love. We love. No love, no evidence of faith. No evidence of faith, no authority to stand and say, I'm a Christian. It works that simple. Now, even as I say that, that doesn't mean that I, I don't fail to love. Of course, I, I, I fail to love. Absolutely. And even there can be some hearing that and seeing the lack of love in their life and going, oh, my goodness. There's no evidence that I'm, I'm saved. Well, first of all, I think that's a good thing to question. But, but, but don't take up the stone just yet and stone yourself. <laughs> all right? The fact that that pricks your heart and there's a desire to love should stir you to prayer. And we know that he's faithful to respond to our prayers of faith. And you can rest assured that if you have genuine faith, it's going to lead you to genuine prayer and the Holy Spirit is going to produce that in you. You can be absolutely sure of that. Otherwise, we just go right back to no love, no evidence of genuine faith. No evidence of genuine faith. No authority to actually say that you're a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And can we just hang our hats there before we go further that uh, it is a fruit of the Spirit. God, God does it. You don't do it. God does it. But he does it through you. So you do it, but you didn't produce it. He did it, and so you do it. Does that make sense? <laughs> now, now, these are 12 ordinary men. I'm not going to go through, through each one of them, but... Um, I do think it's interesting that when you think about the disciples and you think about them, in, when you think about them collectively, you think about the massive work which they endeavored and, 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 and did well. But when you think about them individually, like, like even now, if I were just to shout out a name like Peter, tell me one thing Peter did, right? Denied the Lord, right? Uh, Thomas, tell me one thing Thomas did. He doubted, right? So it's, it's interesting, and we could keep going, keep going through the list of disciples. Philip. What about Philip? Anybody remember what Philip did? Uh, that, that's a different Philip. What's that? Okay, yeah, yeah, we, we'll take that. Okay, show us, show us the Father. You said that in a, um, you said that in a very positive light, but really the, the context of that, right, if you remember, it was... It was that he had not believed that he did not believe that he had seen the Father, right? Right? Jesus was like, Philip, have you been with me for this long? And you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Come on, Philip, get your get your head out of the clouds, right? But but my point being is that uh, is really just the, I just want to just stress for a moment that these were absolutely ordinary men, absolutely. So that when you think about them collectively, you think about the, the major work that they accomplished. But when you think about them individually, you realize it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with them. It was the fact that Christ was with them. It was the fact that the Holy Spirit was empowering them. 
And so it is with us. God uses ordinary men to accomplish extraordinary means. It is the work of the Holy Spirit by which God gets the glory and not ourselves. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh. And now he's talking about us. Remember where you were when God called you? Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. You weren't, you weren't, uh, you weren't accomplishing great things. And, and even if you were, they, they, uh, they were only propping up self, which was, which was bearing bad fruit, maybe even a divorce. Not, not many of you were mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. You know, a lot of people ask this question. I, I don't know if you get this question a lot. I, it comes across my table a lot, which is like, well, I don't, you know, I don't understand. Why is it always like the drug addicts and the prostitutes that they give their life to Jesus? Like, why do you, all do you guys have to hit rock bottom before you give your life to Jesus? And as much as they think that that's like a slander against Christianity, it's actually God's method. He says, no, I, I, did, I do that on purpose. I choose the least of the least. So that when I make much of them, everybody around them will know it's not them, but it's me working in them. And then others will come to me through their testimony because they'll be like, well, if God could use that joker, he could surely do something in my life. And I just want to tell you, if you're new to church today, you're, you're, you're a visitor and, um, and you look around and you're like, wow, everybody has a smile and they have nice clothes. These people, these people are, they've like probably never sinned before. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear the laugh? I don't know who you are, but that was for you, right? We're laughing because uh, if you really knew where, who we are and, and where God has brought us from, I love, uh, C.S. Lewis makes the point that it's like you, you can never judge a Christian uh, for who they are now because you never know who they used to be, right? You can be like, that Christian's got such a bitter attitude. Oh, you should have seen him before. <laughs> you you should have. Oh, God has done a mighty work, <laughs> Right? Right? So welcome to Christianity. We're, we're a mess and God loves us and he's working on us daily. But, but, but it was no different for the disciples. They were a mess too. And I love that it's not hidden from us. That these are mere ordinary men, but God chose them. And when God puts his hand upon your life, he, does, he takes the ordinary and he does the extraordinary. All we need to do is to trust him. Verse 20, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem. The, the scribes, these were the ones who were entrusted with the scriptures, not only to be able to interpret them, but to, but, but to be the teachers among men. They were highly exalted in Israel. And they were trusted as the servants of the Most High. And yet these ones came down from Jerusalem and they said, He has Beelzebub 
and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. Jesus had just delivered a man from demonic possession, and their conclusion in their mind, now remember these signs and wonders that followed the apostles, and, 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 and Jesus is the source of these signs and wonders. So of course, he himself is doing them as well. And they're the sign that Jesus is who he says he is. And they look at the evidence that the Holy Spirit is producing. And their takeaway is that Jesus has a demon. They call him Beelzebub, the Lord of Flies. Can you, can you imagine that? Their hearts are so hard that they've determined in their mind that they will not believe no matter what kind of evidence is given. So much so that when Jesus exemplifies his power in their presence, they make claims that aren't even logical. They don't even make sense. I mean, think about it with me for a second. They say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. Did we hear that right? And Jesus has to actually unfold for them how illogical their statement is. That they're so intent on just making up a reason not to come to Jesus that the reasons that they make are not only blasphemous in their nature, but they don't even make logical sense. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, then that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. He just said the same thing three different ways. The claims you're making don't even make sense. But you're so hell-bent on rejecting me. That you've, you've succumbed to insanity. They said Jesus was out of their mind. They're the ones that are out of their mind. Verse 27, and by the way, this is a, a verse that we believe strongly alludes to the fact that no Christian can ever be demon-possessed. Listen to what he says. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus is just breaking it down in parable form because they're not able to hear the truth. I couldn't overcome Satan unless I was stronger than he is. And when I enter into a man's home, his body, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's because I bind up the enemy. Greater is he who lives inside of you than he who lives in the world. Jesus is so much greater than any demonic force. And I just want to speak that over anybody who may be struggling with uh, uh, nightmares at night, hearing voices in your head, uh, hearing things in the home. I want to remind you that there's power in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we think that the, 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 the darkness is equal to the light, right? Like, uh, like, 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 like darkness is an entity and, and light is an entity and they're opposite of one another and they're equal opposites. No, they're not. 
That doesn't work in scripture. That doesn't even work in reality. Before you walked in this room tonight, it was pitch black. It was dark. And if darkness was equal to light, then when the lights came on, what you would see is darkness hovering and light hovering, and they're just equally opposing one another. But that's not what happens. What happens is you turn on the light and darkness flees because light is so much greater than darkness. And it's not me who who speaks in this way, but it's the word of God that speaks in this way. For it says that Jesus is the light of men, that light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Come on, somebody. So a Christian says, "I, I think I have a demon. No, you don't. Why? Because the strong man has come in. And when the strong man come in, he binds up the enemy. Why? Because he's stronger than he is. So you can rest assured that if the Holy Spirit dwell in you, although you may be oppressed, although the enemy may be closing in, God is living in you. And that's why the promise stands that said, if God is for you, who can be against you? No one. Another rhetorical question. The answer is in the statement, no one can overcome you because God's light dwells within you. And so to that, I would just say, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. The Holy Spirit is so precious. The work of the Holy Spirit is so awesome that if any man speaks in this way, or responds in this way, that they will never be forgiven, not in this age, the book of Matthew says, or in the age to come. Or as it says in the book of Mark, he never has forgiveness. Now, when you read a verse like this, and rightly so, there are so many of us who who wonder, oh my goodness, have I committed that sin? And I would just want to say to you, uh, dear friend, we do not interpret Scripture. Do we not interpret Scripture with Scripture? Should Should we then do with this verse that which we do not do with any other? Should we isolate it in order to explore its meaning? Or should we not consider the promise that says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Somebody might say, I I don't know. I think I've committed the, the unpardonable sin. Then I would say to you, well, well, don't isolate that verse. If that if that's a concern that you have, by all means, have the concern, but rightly divide the word of truth. For the scripture also says that if anyone calls upon his name, he shall be saved. Are you worried that you've committed blasphemy? Then you know what you should do is repent and believe the gospel. Because he promised that if you call upon his name, he'll deliver you. Now, I do believe in, which I'll get to in a moment, that those that have truly committed blasphemy, uh, they, they will not call upon the name of the Lord, and thereby they will never be saved. 
And so it is true that there's no forgiveness for them, uh, not now, not ever. But you can rest assured that if you have faith to call upon the name of Jesus, then it's evidence that you have not yet committed blasphemy. Otherwise, your heart would be so bent on rejecting the work of Christ that you will not repent. So it's very logical to say that if you're worried that you've committed it, to some degree, that's evidence that you have not yet. (laughs) How many people I know that will gladly take up enough of the gospel to condemn themselves to hell, but they will not take enough to be saved? You guys know what I'm talking about? Man, at every turn, they turn the pages and they just see, I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. They they have enough gospel to condemn themselves to hell, but not enough to save themselves. And we want to make sure that when we come across verses like this, that we're not treating the scriptures unfairly. As long as the scriptures say that there is forgiveness for everyone who seeks the Lord, then I shall believe it. Uh, Remember with me, if you will, that Peter denied Christ three times. Not only did Peter deny Christ three times, he denied him with a curse. That doesn't just mean that that Peter said cuss words. That means he swore on his soul that he does not know Jesus. If there was ever a one who sold their soul to Satan, I think it would be Peter in that verse. But the Bible says that all souls are mine, says the Lord. Satan does not have a soul You do not have a soul to sell because it doesn't belong to you and it definitely doesn't belong to Satan. If any man repents and Peter repented and he was forgiven, uh, Paul killed Christians. He vehemently denied the faith and he repented and he was forgiven. Thomas persisted in unbelief, but he turned from his unbelief and he was forgiven. Nebuchadnezzar claimed that the glory of the work of his hands was owed to himself and thereby denied God the glory, and yet he repented and was forgiven. David committed adultery and then murdered the husband of the wife that he slept with, and he repented and was forgiven. You know, there's a saying that we, we all say some from time to time, I'm just I'm not going to buck, buck up against it. Just maybe bring a little more clarity. As long as a man is alive, there's hope. Not necessarily. Rather, as long as a man is willing to repent, there is hope. For as long as, a, as one is alive but unwilling to repent, there is no hope for that man. In conclusion, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to have such insurmountable evidence of the work of Christ in one's life that the individual cannot in good conscience reject the truth. Nevertheless, the individual is so hell-bent on rejecting the work of Christ in their lives that they willingly treat the Holy Spirit to be evil, satanic, and unclean. They therefore will never repent. For they have once and for all rejected the Spirit who would grant them repentance. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, so, so here's, here's what I'm wrestling with here, I'm, uh, if, if I'm not being clear, is this. How do I reconcile that there are those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit who can never be forgiven, and yet the Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? 
And I think the only logical conclusion that's congruent with the rest of Scripture is that these people have so positioned themselves against the Holy Spirit, and we can see that in the life of the scribes, they're so intent on rejecting the work of Christ that they refuse to repent. Here's what I'm saying, that if you will repent, you will be saved. But there is such a way as to live in such a hardness and rebellion against the Holy Spirit that your heart becomes so hard that even though you say one day you'll repent, when that day comes, your heart's so hard that you refuse. I, I, I heard one given illustration like this, and so I'm going to borrow the illustration. He said that he saw uh, an eagle. I don't know if this was just a parable or he actually saw it, but that he saw an eagle land on a piece of, of, of ice, and this ice was uh, headed down a waterfall. And the eagle lands on the piece of ice because there's a carcass sticking out of the ice. And the eagle knows within himself that, uh, that if he stays on this piece of ice long enough that he's going to end up going down the waterfall. But he wants the carcass that's on the piece of ice, and so he begins plucking and picking away at it and, and eating it. And he sees the, 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 the ice is coming closer to the edge, but he says to himself, I've got majestic wings, and uh, just the right time, I'll fly away. And just as the piece of ice is getting ready to fall off the edge of the waterfall, he begins to flap his majestic wings. But what he doesn't realize is that he had spent so much time on the ice that his claws were stuck. So that when it was the opportunity to repent, he had not the ability to repent. Now, I shared that with a friend of mine, and they said, well, what does that, what does that mean? Like, does, does that mean someone could actually try to repent and not repent? And listen, I, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a complicated question. I, I, I can tell you of one time where I, I saw something like that. I was sitting in a prison, and I shared with a man the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that this gentleman committed blasphemy. I am saying that I could see the danger of him continuing to head down that path. Because I shared with him the gospel, and he was so overlated to hear the hope that was ministered to him in the gospel that he began to weep. But he wasn't weeping because he wanted it. He was weeping because he knew that it was the right thing to do. But he loved his sin so much that he didn't want to give it up. And so he was weeping. And to me, that's scary. I'm not saying that that man couldn't repent. What I am saying is, I'm just asking the question, is it possible to, to remain in that state of sin for so long that by the time the opportunity comes to repent, you no longer even want to? So when someone says, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll give my life to Jesus, I just need a little bit more time. Tomorrow I give my life to Jesus. Tomorrow, 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 and when tomorrow comes, the desire is no longer there that the heart has become so hard and the conscience has become so seared and calloused that they push up against the Holy Spirit. Therefore, and I'm going to end with this verse. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice. Whose voice? The voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not harden your hearts 
as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your forefathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. And appropriately, we end with the last verses. For they came to him and they said, Jesus... Then his brothers and his mothers came, standing outside. They sent to him, calling him, and the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered and said to them, Who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. I want to be very clear tonight. If you are afraid that you have committed blasphemy, as I said a moment ago, that that is a sure well sign that you have not. Because you're worried that salvation no longer belongs to you. And for the one who has committed blasphemy, if I understand the scriptures correctly, that worry would never be in their mind because they're so adamant and rejecting the work of Christ that they would have no desire to be saved by Christ. And how do I make sure that that never becomes me? By living a life of repentance. By hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and obeying. Why? Because how precious, one last rhetorical question, how precious is the Holy Spirit in your life and mine? And so our prayer is, God, help us to hear him and obey him. And by God's strength, we will. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, just handle this word with, with care. First and foremost, because it's your holy, eternal word, but uh, also because it has an impact on the life of your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to give clarity. But we also pray that, that we would be those who are considered your family because we're careful to do your word, not just hearers, but doers. 
So, Father, we ask that you would make us holy as you are holy, that we wouldn't settle for less. And we trust that as we pray that you'll accomplish exactly that in our lives. So we thank you in advance. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us as we were. Thank you for not leaving us as we are. Thank you that you're going to be faithful to complete what you started. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.